0: This audio is presented by Hacker Noon, where anyone can learn anything about any technology. Mathematical Memories Newton's Binomial Theorem by Jean-Henri Fabre The Life of the Fly with which are interspersed some chapters of autobiography by Jean-Henri Fabre is part of the Hacker Noon book series. You can jump to any chapter in this book here. Mathematical Memories Newton's Binomial Theorem, Chapter 12 Mathematical Memories Newton's binomial theorem. The spider's web is a glorious mathematical problem. I should enjoy working it out in all its details, were I not afraid of wearying the reader's attention. Perhaps I have even gone too far in the little that I have said, in which case I owe him some compensation. Would you like me? I will ask him Would you like me to tell you how I acquired sufficient algebra to master the logarithmic systems and how I became a surveyor of spider's webs? Would you? It will give USA rest from natural history. I seem to catch a sign of acquiescence. The story of my village school, visited by the chicks and the porkers, has been received with some indulgence. Why should not my harsh school of solitude possess its interest as well? Let us try to describe it. And who knows? Perhaps, in doing so, I shall revive the courage of some other poor derelict hungering after knowledge. I was denied the privilege of learning with a master. I should be wrong to complain. Solitary study has its advantages. It does not cast you in the official mold. It leaves you all your originality. Wild fruit, when it ripens, has a different taste from hothouse produce. It leaves on a discriminating palate a bittersweet flavor whose virtue is all the greater for the contrast. Yes, if it were in my power, I would start afresh, face-to-face with my only counselor, the book itself, not always a very lucid one. I would gladly resume me lonely watches, my struggles with the darkness whence, at last, a glimmer appears as I continue to explore it. I should retraverse the irksome stages ayore stimulated by the one desire that has never failed me, the desire of learning and of afterwards bestowing my might of knowledge on others. When I left the normal school, my stock of mathematics was of the scantiest. How to extract a square root, how to calculate and prove the surface of a sphere. These represented to me the culminating points of the subject. Those terrible logarithms, when I happened to open a table of them, made my head swim, with their columns of figures. Actual fright, not unmixed with respect, overwhelmed me on the very threshold of that arithmetical cave. Of algebra I had no knowledge whatever. I had heard the name, and the syllables represented to my poor brain the whole whirling legion of the abstruse. Besides, I felt no inclination to decipher the alarming hieroglyphics. They made one of those indigestible dishes which we confidently extol without touching them. I greatly preferred a fine line of Virgil, whom I was now beginning to understand, and I should have been surprised indeed had anyone told me that, for long years to come, I should be an enthusiastic student of the formidable science. Good fortune procured me my first lesson in algebra, a lesson given and not received, of course. A young man of about my own age came to me and asked me to teach him algebra. He was preparing for his examination as a civil engineer, and he came to me because, ingenuous youth that he was, he took me for a well of learning. The guileless applicant was very far out in his reckoning. His request gave me a shock of surprise, which was forthwith repressed on reflection. I give algebra lessons, said I to myself. It would be madness, it don't know anything about the subject, and I left it at that for a moment or two, thinking hard, drawn now this way, now that with indecision. Shall I accept? Shall I refuse? Continued the inner voice, Pooh, let's accept. an heroic method of learning to swim is to leap boldly into the sea. Let us hurl ourselves head first into the algebraical gulf, and perhaps the imminent danger of drowning will call forth efforts capable of bringing Mado land. I know nothing of what he wants. It makes no difference. Let's go ahead and plunge into the mystery. I shall learn by teaching. It was a fine courage that drove me full tilt into a province which I had not yet thought of entering. My twenty-year-old confidence was an incomparable lever. Very well, I replied. Come the day after tomorrow, at five, and we'll begin. This twenty-four hours delay concealed a plan. It secured me the respite of a day, the blessed Thursday, which would give me time to collect my forces. Thursday comes. The sky is gray and cold. In this horrid weather, a great well filled with coke has its charms. Let's warm ourselves and think. Well, my boy, you've landed yourself in a nice predicament. How will you manage tomorrow? With a book, plotting all through the night, if necessary, you might scrape up something resembling a lesson, just enough to fill the dread hour more or less. Then you could see about the next. Sufficient for the day is the evil thereof. But you haven't the book. And it's no use running out to the bookshop. Algebraical treatises are not current wares. You'll have to send for one, which will take a fortnight at least. And I've promised for tomorrow, for tomorrow certain. Another argument and one that admits of no reply. Funds are low. My last pecuniary resources lie in the corner of a drawer. I count the money. It amounts to 12 sous, which is not enough. Must I cry off? Rather not. One resource suggests itself. A highly improper one. I admit, not far removed indeed from larceny. O quiet paths of algebra, you are any excuse for this venial sin. Let me confess the temporary embezzlement. Life at my college is more or less cloistered. In return for a modest payment, most of us masters are lodged in the building, and we take our meals at the principal's table. The science master, who is the big gun of the staff and lives in the town, has nevertheless, like ourselves, his own two cells, in addition to a balcony, or leads, where the chemical preparations give forth their suffocating gases in the open air. For this reason, he finds it more convenient to hold his class here during the greater part of the year. The boys come to these rooms in winter, in front of a grate stuffed full of coke, like mine, and there find a blackboard, a pneumatic trough, a mantelpiece covered with glass receivers, panoplies of bent tubes on the walls, and, lastly, a certain cupboardine which I remember seeing a row of books, the oracles consulted by the master in the course of his lessons. Among those books, said I to myself, there is sure to be one on algebra. To ask the owner for the loan of it does not appeal to me. My amiable colleague would receive me superciliously and laugh at my ambitious aims. I am sure he would refuse my request. The future was to show that my distrust was justified. Narrow-mindedness and petty jealousy prevail everywhere alike. I decide to help myself to this book, which I should never get by asking. Thesis The Half Holiday. The Science Master will not put in an appearance today and the key of my room is practically the same as his. I go, with eyes and ears on the alert. My key does not quite fit. It sticks a little, then goes in, and an extra effort makes it turn in the lock. The door opens. I inspect the cupboard and find that it does contain an algebra book, one of the big, fat books which men used to write in those days, a book nearly half a foot thick. My legs give way beneath me. You poor specimen of a housebreaker. Suppose you were caught otied. However, all goes well. Quick. Let's lock the door again and go back to our own quarters with the pilfered volume. And now we are together, O Mysterious Tome, whose Arab name breathes a strange mustiness of occult lore and claims kindred with the sciences of almagest and alchemy. What will you show me? Let us turn the leaves at random. Before fixing one's eyes on a definite point in the landscape, it is well to take a summary view of the whole. Page follows swiftly upon page, telling me nothing. A chapter catches my attention in the middle of the volume, it is headed, Newton Binomial Theorem the title allures me. What can a binomial theorem be, especially one whose author is Newton, the great English mathematician who weighed the worlds? What is the mechanism of the sky to do with this? Let us read and seek for enlightenment. With my elbows on the table and my thumbs behind my ears, I concentrate all my attention. I am seized with astonishment, for I understand. There are a certain number of letters, general symbols which are grouped in all manner of ways, taking their places here, there and elsewhere by turns, there are, as the text tells me, arrangements, permutations and combinations. Pen in hand, I arrange, permute and combine. It is a very diverting exercise, upon my word, a game in which the test of the written result confirms the anticipations of logic and supplements the shortcomings of one's thinking apparatus. It will be plain sailing, said I to myself, if algebra is no more difficult than this. I was to recover from the illusion later, when the binomial theorem, that light, crisp biscuit, was followed by heavier and less digestible fare. But, for the moment, I had no foretaste of the future difficulties, of the pitfall in which one becomes more and more entangled, the longer one persists in struggling. What a delightful afternoon that was, before my grate, amid my permutations and combinations. By the evening, I had nearly mastered my subject. When the bell rung, at seven, to summon us to the common meal at the principal's table, I went downstairs puffed up with the joys of the newly initiated neophyte. I was escorted on my way by A, B and C, intertwined in cunning garlands. Next day, my pupil is there. Blackboard and chalk, everything is ready. Not quite so ready as the master. I bravely broach my binomial theorem. My hearer becomes interested in the combinations of letters. Not for a moment does he suspect that I am putting the cart before the horse and beginning where we ought to have finished. I relieve the dryness of my explanations with a few little problems, so many halts at which the mind takes breath a while and gathers strength for fresh flights. We try together, discreetly, so as to leave him the merit of the discovery, ished a little light on the path. The solution is found. My pupil triumphs, so but silently, in my inner consciousness, which says, you understand, because you succeed in making another understand. The hour passed quickly and very pleasantly for both of us. My young man was contented when he left me, And I know less so, for I perceived a new and original way of learning things. The ingenious and easy arrangement of the binomial gave me time to tackle my algebra book from the proper commencement. In three or four days, I had rubbed up my weapons. There was nothing to be said about addition and subtraction, they were so simple as to force themselves upon one at first sight. Multiplication spoilt things. There was a certain rule of signs which declared that minus multiplied by minus made plus. How I toiled over that wretched paradox. It would seem that the book did not explain this subject clearly, or rather employed too abstract a method. I read, reread and meditated in vain. The obscure text retained all its obscurity. That is the drawback of books in general. They tell you what is printed in them and nothing more. If you fail to understand, they never advise you, never suggest an attempt along another road which might lead you to the light. The merest word would sometimes be enough to put you on the right track. And that word the books, hidebound in a regulation phraseology, never give you. How greatly preferable is the oral lesson. It goes forward, goes back, starts afresh, walks around the obstacle and varies the methods of attack until, at long last, light is shed upon the darkness. This incomparable beacon of the master's word was what I lacked, and I went under, without hope of succor, in that treacherous pool of the rule of signs. My pupil was bound to suffer the effects. After an attempt at an explanation in which I made the most of the few gleams that reached me I asked him, Do you understand? It was a futile question, but useful for gaining time. Myself not understanding, I was convinced beforehand that he did not understand either. No, he replied, accusing himself, perhaps, in his simple mind, of possessing a brain incapable of taking in those transcendental verities. Let us try another method. And I start again this way and that way and yet another way. My pupils I serve as my thermometer and tell me of the progress of my efforts. A blink of satisfaction announces my success. I have struck home, I have found the joint in the armor. The product of minus multiplied by minus delivers its mysteries to us. And thus we continued our studies. He, the passive receiver, taking in the ideas acquired without effort. I, the fierce pioneer, blasting my rock, the book, with the aid of much sitting up at night, to extract the diamond, truth. Another and no less arduous task fell to my share. I had to cut and polish the reconditagem, to strip it of its ruggedness and present it to my companion's intelligence under a less forbidding aspect. This diamond cutter's work, which admitted a little light into the precious stone, was the favorite occupation of my leisure, and I owe a great deal to it. The ultimate result was that my pupil passed his examination. As for the book borrowed by stealth, I restored it to the shelves and replaced it by another, which, this time, belonged to me. At my normal school, I had learnt a little elementary geometry under a master. From the first few lessons onwards, I rather enjoyed the subject. I divined in it a guide for one's reasoning faculties through the thickets of the imagination. I caught a glimpse of a search after truth that did not involve too much stumbling on the way, because each step forward rests solidly upon the stepal ready taken. I suspected geometry to be what it preeminently is, a school of intellectual fencing. The truth demonstrated in its application matter little to me, What rouses my enthusiasm is the process that sets the truth before us. We start from a brilliantly lighted spot and gradually get deeper and deeper in the darkness, which, in its turn, becomes self-illuminated by kindling new lights for a higher ascent. This progressive march of the known toward the unknown, this conscientious lantern lighting what follows by the rays of what comes before— that was my real business. Geometry was to teach me the logical progression of thought, It was to tell me how the difficulties are broken up into sections which, elucidated consecutively, together form a lever capable of moving the block that resists any direct efforts. Lastly, it showed me how order is engendered—order, the base of clarity. If it has ever fallen to my lot to write a page or two which the reader has run over without excessive fatigue, I owe it, in great part, to geometry—that wonderful teacher of the art of directing one's thought. True, it does not bestow imagination, a delicate flower blossoming none knows how and unable to thrive on every soil, but it arranges what is confused, thins out the dense, calms the tumultuous, filters the muddy and gives lucidity, a superior product to all the tropes of rhetoric. Yes, as a toiler with the pen, I owe much to it. Wherefore my thoughts readily turn back to those bright hours of my novitiate, when, retiring to a corner of the garden in recreation time, with a bit of paper on my knees and a stump of pencil in my fingers, I used to practice deducing this or that property correctly from an assemblage of straight lines. The others amused themselves all around me. I found my delight in the frustum of a pyramid. Perhaps I should have it own better to strengthen the muscles of my thighs by jumping and leaping, to increase the suppleness of my loins with gymnastic contortions. I have known some contortionists who have prospered beyond the thinker. See me then entering the lists as an instructor of youth, fairly well acquainted with the elements of geometry. In case of need, I could handle the land-surveyor's stake and chain. There my views ended. To cube the trunk of a tree, to gauge a cask, to measure the distance of an inaccessible point appeared to meth highest pitch to which geometrical knowledge could hope to soar. Were there loftier flights? I did not even suspect it, when an unexpected glimpse showed meth puny dimensions of the little corner which I had cleared in the measureless domain. At that time, the college in which, two years before, I had made my first appearance as a teacher, had just halved the size of its classes and largely increased its staff. The newcomers all lived in the building, like myself, and we had our meals in common at the principal's table. We formed a hive where, in or leisure time, some of us, in our respective cells, worked up the honey-of-algebra and geometry, history and physics, Greek and Latin most of all, sometimes with a view to the class above, sometimes and oftener with a view to acquiring a degree. The university titles lacked variety. All my colleagues wear bachelors of letters, but nothing more. They must, if possible, arm themselves a little better to make their way in the world. We all worked hard and steadily. I was the youngest of the industrious community and no less eager than the rest to increase my modest equipment. Visits between the different rooms were frequent. We would come to consult one another about a difficulty, or simply to pass the time of day. I had as a neighbor, in the next cell to mine, a retired quartermaster who, weary of barrack life, had taken refuge in education. When in charge of the books of his company he had become more or less familiar with figures, and it became his ambition to take a mathematical degree. His cerebrum appears to have hardened while he was with his regiment. According to my dear colleagues, those amiable retailers of the misfortunes of others, he had already twice been plucked. Stubbornly, he returned to his books and exercises, refusing to be daunted by two reverses. It was not that he was allured by the beauties of mathematics, far from it, but the step to which he aspired favoured his plans. He hoped to have his own borders and dispense butter and vegetables to lucrative purpose. The lover of study for its own sake and the persistent trapper hunting a diploma as he would something to put in his mouth were not made to understand or to see much of each other. Chance, however, brought us together. I had often surprised our friend sitting in the evening, by the light of a candle, with his elbows on the table and his head between his hands, meditating at great length in front of a big exercise book crammed with cabalistic signs. From time to time, when an idea came to him, he would take his pen and H.A. Stiley put down a line of writing wherein letters, large and small, were grouped without any grammatical sense. The letters X and Y often recurred, intermingled with figures. Every row ended with the sign of equality in a knot. Next camomore reflection, with closed eyes, and a fresh row of letters arranged in a different order and likewise followed by a knot. Page after page was filled in this queer fashion, each line winding up with zero. What are you doing with all those rows of figures amounting to zero? I asked at him one day. The mathematician gave me a leery look, picked up in barracks. A sarcastic droop in the corner of his eye showed how he pitied my ignorance. My colleague of the many knots did not, however, take an unfair advantage of his superiority. He told me that he was working at analytical geometry. The phrase had a strange effect upon me. I ruminated silently to this purpose. There was a higher geometry, which you learnt more particularly with combinations of letters in which X and Y played a prominent part. When my next-door neighbor reflected so long, clutching his forehead between his hands, he was trying to discover the hidden meaning of his own hieroglyphics, he saw the ghostly translation of his sums dancing in space. What did he perceive? How would the alphabetical signs, arranged first in one and then in another manner, give an image of the actual things, an image visible to the eyes of the alone? It beat me. I shall have to learn analytical geometry someday, I said. Will you help me? I'm quite willing, he replied, with a smile in which I read his lack of confidence in my determination. No matter. We struck a bargain that same evening. We would together break up the stubble of algebra and analytical geometry, the foundation of the mathematical degree. We would make common stock. He would bring long hours of calculation. I'm a youthful ardor we would begin as soon as I had finished with my arts degree, which was my main preoccupation for the moment. In those far-off days it was the rule to make a little serious literary study take precedence of science. You were expected to be familiar with the great minds of antiquity, to converse with Horace and Virgil, Theocritus and Plato, before touching the poisons of chemistry or the levers of mechanics. The niceties of thought could only be the gainers by these preparations. Life's exigencies, ever harsher as progress afflicts us with its increasing needs, have changed all that. A fig for correct language. Business before all. This modern hurry would have suited my impatience. I confess that I fumed against the regulation which forced Latin and Greek upon me before allowing Mato open up relations with the sine and cosine. Today, wiser, ripened by age and experience, I am of a different opinion. I very much regret that my modest literary studies were not more carefully conducted and further prolonged. To fill up this enormous blank a little, I respectfully returned—somewhat late in life—to those good old books which are usually sold secondhand with their leaves hardly cut. Venerable pages, annotated in pencil during the long evenings of my youth, I have found you again and you are more than ever my friends. You have taught me that an obligation rests upon whoever wields the pen. He must have something to say that is capable of interesting us. When the subject comes within the scope of natural science, the interest is nearly always assured. The difficulty, the great difficulty, is to prune it of its thorns and to present Itunder a prepossessing aspect. Truth, they say, rises naked from a well. Agreed. But admit that she is all the better for being decently clothed. She craves, if not the gaudy furbelows borrowed from Rhetoric's wardrobe, at least a vine leaf. The geometers alone have the right to refuse her that modest garment—in the orums, plainness suffices. The others, especially the naturalist, are in duty bound to drape a gauze tunic more or less elegantly around her waist. Suppose I say, Baptiste, give me my slippers. I am expressing myself in plain language, a little poor in variance. I know exactly what I am saying and my speech is understood. Others, and they are numerous, contend that this rudimentary method is the best in all things. They talk science to their readers as they might talk slippers to Baptiste. Kaffir syntax does not shock them. Do not speak to them of the value of a well-selected term, set down in its right place, still less of a lilting construction, sounding rather well. Childish nonsense they call all that. The fiddling of a short-sighted mind. Perhaps they are right. The Baptiste idiom is a great economizer of time and trouble. This advantage does not tempt me. It seems to me that an idea stands out better if expressed in lucid language, with sober imagery. A suitable phrase, placed in its correct position and saying without fuss the things we want to say necessitates a choice, an often laborious choice. There are drab words, the common places of colloquial speech, and there are, so to speak, colored words, which may be compared with the brushstrokes strewing patches of light over the gray background of a painting. How are we to find those picturesque words, those striking features which arrest the attention? How are we to group them into a language heedful of syntax and not displeasing to the ear? I was taught nothing of this art. For that matter, is it ever taught in the schools? I greatly doubt it. If the fire that runs through our veins, if inspiration do not come to our aid, we shall flutter the pages of the the thesaurus in vain. The word for which we seek will refuse to come. Then to what masters shall we have recourse to quicken and develop the humble germ that is latent within us? To books. As a boy, I was always an ardent reader, but the niceties of a well balanced style hardly interested me. I did not understand them. A good deal later, when close upon fifteen, I began vaguely to see that words have a physiognomy of their own. Some pleased me better than others by the distinctness of meaning and the resonance of their rhythm. They produced a clearer image in my mind. After their fashion, they gave me a picture of the object described. Colored by its adjective and vivified by its verb, the name became a living reality, what it said I saw. And thus, gradually, was the magic of words revealed to me, when the chances of, my undirected reading placed a few easy standard pages in my way. About Hacker Noon book series, we bring you the most important technical, scientific, and insightful public domain books. This book is part of the public domain. Jean-Henri Fabre, 2002. The Life of the Fly, with which are interspersed some chapters of autobiography. Urbana, Illinois. Project Gutenberg. Retrieved October HTTPS colon slash slash www. Gutenberg. Org, cache, EPUB, 67,000, PG 67,000 images. HTML This ebook is for the use of anyone anywhere at no cost and with almost no restrictions whatsoever. You may copy it, give it away, or reuse it under the terms of the Project Gutenberg license included with this ebook or online at www.gutenberg.org, located at https://www.gutenberg.org, policy, license. HTML. Thank you for listening to this HackerNoon story, read by Artificial Intelligence.